Let's take our Bibles today. Turn over to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 36. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 30. Well, make it 35. We'll start there in 35 instead. And then we'll read through the end of the chapter, which is just 40, verse 41. 
The same day when the even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat unto the ship, so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow, and they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly, and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? I remember just as a little boy, it wasn't, I probably wasn't more than six or seven years old, maybe eight at the most, and my family and I, we went to Joggle Lake. My dad used to work at Goodyear. He's now retired, but there at Goodyear, they would have the annual picnic, the company picnic, and they would have it at the, the Joggle Lake, and boy, that was so exciting as a kid because, I, you know, we really didn't go to Joggle Lake unless somebody else paid. And so here we were now on Goodyear's dime at the Joggle Lake Park, and I mean to tell you, it was like, I mean, you, you know, they can talk about all those other places you can go, you know, Carowinds and Six Flags, and you can go to any place you choose. But let me tell you, as a little kid, just seven, eight, nine years of age, I'm going to tell you, it was big time. And uh, I remember there uh, going on all those different rides that one afternoon, and we'd gone there a number of years with on the company, so to speak, and uh, that one year, again, probably about eight years old maybe, I remember that it just seemed that all of a sudden the sky started getting rather dark on the one corner, and we were on the far end of the, uh, of the park, and, and it started looking ominous. I mean, it was looking dark, and really bad. And we started to see some lightning over in the side of the sky. And so we started making our way back toward the pavilion where our family was uh, parked, so to speak. And, and we made our way there. And as we were getting toward there, that big cloud and that ominous sky kept moving toward us. And it seemed the faster we ran, the faster it seemed to catch up to us. And it just kind of kept licking our heels the whole way back. And about the time we got into that pavilion, I mean, the rain started pouring and the, the, the lightning started flashing and the the thunder started roaring. And I'm telling you what, it was a downpour. But worse than that, the lightning was striking everywhere. Literally, it was hitting things around us. And I remember my dad in this pavilion, there was all these people and they were screaming and they were yelling and they were going crazy. And my dad stood up and was like, everybody get under the, the picnic tables, get under the picnic tables. He's standing up there just keeping, I mean, my dad was like a general and he, he just never lost his head. These people were screaming and they're going crazy. They didn't know what to do. I was amazed. I watched him say, get under the picnic tables, everybody. Under the picnic tables. Get under the picnic tables. And so here everybody's climbing under picnic tables. And lightning striking everywhere. And it's loud and it's just boom and boom everywhere. It was almost like we we're in the midst of warfare. I mean, it was amazing. And so all of a sudden, my dad, somebody was missing. I can't remember who it was. But my dad, as he got everybody under the tables, not just my family. I'm talking about the other families. They were freaking out. And kids were missing. And you know how it is. They're scattered through the park. My dad takes off running out of there into that rain and into that lightning. And I remember jumping out from underneath that picnic table. And boom, I took off with my dad. 
I wasn't supposed to probably, but I did. And I still remember in certain places they would have those metal poles coming out of the ground, like about every two or three feet apart. And I remember lightning striking, my hair literally standing up on my head. I mean, it was close. And I'm going to tell you, it was scary. But my dad was there. My father was there. And he gave me courage. And there I followed him out. And there we went yelling out, Hello, get over here, Jed. Where you at? Where you at, Evan? We're yelling for our brothers and my brother. And I had courage in the midst of that storm because he was there. I don't think I'd have ran out in that storm if he wasn't. I wouldn't have went out into the midst of all that mess. And I I mean, I wouldn't have been able to keep my head if my father wasn't there to help me keep it, so to speak. And I'm going to tell you something. We're in the midst here of a passage that there's a great storm taking place. And I want you to realize something. These men that are in that boat, they were experienced fishermen. They weren't just novice at this game. They knew a little bit about storms, but yet they were afraid and they were scared for their very lives. And the only thing that brought peace was the Father. You say, it was Jesus. I know. Well, we'll be all right with that. God stepped in. You know, sometimes we're looking for solutions and we're looking for answers that do not include God. Sometimes we get the idea if only I had a better bill of health, if only somebody would give me some better news, if only I got a new job, if only I could get a new house, if only I would get rid of this wife and get a better one, if only I could do this or do that or get this or get that, everything would be all right in my life. May I tell you the secret to life in the Christian life? The secret is this. You need no one. You need nothing but Jesus. And that's the reality that we've got to come to in our Christian life, that he is enough. And there in the midst of the storm that day, it wasn't uh, just a simple get rid of the storm. It wasn't just get us across this lake. It was here comes Jesus. Here he comes there walking on the water. Jesus can help us. Jesus will save us. That was another time. And this time he's asleep in the hinder part of the ship. Every single time. It's always Jesus. It's always Jesus. As long as he's there, you're okay. Whether he's walking on the sea, whether he's asleep in the hinder part, no matter where he's at, he's always the answer. They were scared out of their minds. But Jesus was there. I want to note four things in the passage this this morning. Four simple things. I want to note his preeminence. I want to note his passion. I want to consider his power and finally his patience. We see these things in the passage, and so we're going to take a few minutes and look at them. And may I say, it's important that we as believers get a glimpse of this, that we really understand what we're dealing with and who we're dealing with. Everyone in this room is going to go through storms. But it's not the what, it's the who that really matters. Him. And we've got to be careful that we don't focus on the what's, and yet... Instead, we focus on the who. So let's pray. Father, we come to you. We desperately need you today. 
We pray, Lord, that you would just meet our needs. Everyone in this room has needs. And Father, we ask that you would help us to focus on you and not to allow the circumstance or the situation to overwhelm us or to cause us to be frozen with fear. May we realize always, Lord, that as long as you are near, whether you're walking on the sea, whether you're in the hinder part of the boat, no matter where you're at, Lord, help us to realize as long as you're there, in the midst of the storm, everything will be okay. Father, we need you now. Teach us from your passage. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So we note his preeminence, first of all, in this passage. I think about his preeminence over all creation. It's it's interesting to think about how the Lord Jesus Christ, obviously, we know in Colossians, is creator God as well. And we note that, that he is over his creation. Now, I want to try to illustrate that a little bit. Cody, will you come on up here just for me for just a few moments? And, and I want you to kind of get in front here, okay? So, no, I want you to climb up and get actually on front and top here. Uh, and just kind of get over there. There you go. That's great. And um, <clears throat> so, you know, we have the Lord. And, of course, we know that he is um, the creator of all creation. And in this position on the stage, Cody is representing God in his creative act. He creates the, 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 the universe. He creates the, 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 the stars. He creates the, the, the earth and all that is therein. And, 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 and there he is over his creation. And, you know, that's the place where we see God. That's the place where we recognize God and where his rightful place is over his creation If you represent the creation, and you do really, then he stands over you. He stands over me in that sense. He is preeminent. He is creator God. In this passage, we get a glimpse of the creator God over his creation. And yet, here's the thing that makes it hard. And it was very difficult for the disciples at this point because he was not, in a sense, in one sense, he was not over his creation at this point. He had allowed himself, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. The Bible tells us in Matthew 1.23, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So we know that God himself was manifest in the flesh. He came through this, this supernatural act between God and Mary. And there we have Jesus Christ, God, man. Now step down off there, would you please? The best you can without hurting yourself. That's why I had him do that. <laughs> he became man, 100% man, 100% God. But let me tell you something. When God is down here with his creation, it's hard for everybody to recognize him. See, he has a rightful place above and uh, before his creation, preeminent above his creation. He's so far beyond us, we can't even grasp who and what he's really all about. We can't realize how holy he is and how, how righteous he is and how perfect he is and how powerful he is and how preeminent he is. We just can't wrap our minds around that. But how much more difficult is it for the disciples? How much more difficult was it for those that lived that day on earth when he stepped down out of glory and took his place among sinful man? 
And we wonder and we say things like, how come they couldn't tell it was him? How come they were so pig-headed, so strong-headed, so bull-headed? How come they just didn't get it that Jesus was the Christ? Because now he's no longer here where he does belong. He's taken his place on earth with us. He looks like us. He acts like us. He smells like us in that regard. He hungers like us. He needs rest like us. He's a mere man in the image of man. And here we look at him and we say, he looks like a man. He acts like a man. He feels like a man. He thinks like a man. And yet he is God. And so maybe it wasn't as easy to see as we would think. But Jesus was, and still was, I should say, preeminent over his creation while he was here. Because what we find in the passage is that he has power over creation. Over everything he created, he still had power. And where he chose not to exercise his power, it was simply because he chose not to exercise it. He could have done anything he wanted while here, but he chose not to. Thanks, Cody. So God is preeminent. And in creation, it's easy to see our God lifted up, magnified, exalted, and preeminent. But when he stepped down onto earth that day, it made it hard. And yet he was still preeminent. And we see evidence of it in our passage this morning. Although he took his place among mankind, he still was all God. And he was preeminent. And the fact that he had power over nature itself and over the creation itself was proof positive that he had not relinquished his deity. We note his preeminence in the passage. Number two, we note his passion. In verse 38 and verse 39, notice it says, And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. They awake him. And say unto him, I wonder if he had as hard a time finding a good pillow as we do today. Isn't that a chore? Anyway, once you find one, don't lose it, right? You got to take care of that thing. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow, and they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Carest thou not that we perish? I mean, these men were fearful for their lives here, we see them. Now again, he goes on to say, and he arose and rebuked the wind. See, God loves us. And as a result of his great love for us, he cares. I mean, really, when they say to him, you know, carest thou not that we perish? We look at that and we think to ourselves, how in the world could they even imagine that? How could they even think that? This was God in flesh. Because again, he wasn't standing above His creation, he was with it. He was veiled in flesh. God himself. And they asked the question in the heat of the moment, in the most difficult times of their life, they said, carest thou not that we perish? You know, I think it's not fair to to put on them a responsibility that we don't take ourselves. Have you ever been in a position where the storms of life are raging and you found yourself saying, God, Don't you even care? 
And it's easy to look at these men and those on that ship that day and maybe those little ships around them and say to themselves, how is it that they could not understand? How is it they could not know? Why is it after seeing him heal this man and that man and that woman and that woman, how's come after seeing him do the miracles that he did? Didn't they understand this is God? Didn't they realize he could do all things? Don't they know that he cares? But I'll tell you what, when you get in the midst of a storm and I get in the midst of the storm, it's easy to start questioning whether he cares. And this old flesh in which we live, I don't care how sanctified we believe ourselves to be, this old flesh is weak. If we're not careful, we find ourselves questioning whether God in heaven even cares about us. Sure, he died on Calvary, and sure, he rose again, and certainly he received us unto himself when we called upon him. But then again, I'm in the midst of a mess right now. Where are you at, God? Everything goes by the wayside. Isn't it funny how the children of Israel were? I mean, he crosses them over the Red Sea, destroys their enemy, takes them through the wilderness 40 years. Every time we turn around, throughout the course of the history of of Israel, they're forever forgetting what God had done. And in the midst of a difficult time, they always go back and say, boy, if only we had just been left in Egypt. If only we'd have just died there. If only we could have just... Because they always question the care of God, the concern of God. Don't you care for us? But God loves us, and as a result, he cares. In John 3.16, you know the passage by heart probably. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In Ephesians 2.4, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Boy, I tell you, he has a great love for you and he has a great love for me. Boy, does God love us. And you know, evidence of that love is seen in this account. You say, well, how do we see it? Well, first of all, he was willing to be interrupted. It's funny, if you really love someone, you're willing to be interrupted. That's something. I mean, here's Jesus. He's asleep in the hinder part of the ship. Now listen, Jesus is well aware of what's taking place. I got thinking about that even this morning. Do you realize that nothing, I mean absolutely nothing, catches Jesus off guard? He, he doesn't, it's not like, do you realize what's going on here? Hmm, I wasn't paying attention. I got thinking about in heaven how God, he is omniscient, he is omnipresent, he's omnipotent. That om, omnipresent thing kind of started to kind of grip me this morning. That as I'm driving down the road, he knows exactly what I'm thinking, what I'm doing, and where I'm at. And yet he knows exactly what my wife is thinking, what she's doing, and where she's at. That means there's not one moment of my life that God is not privy to my life, what's going on in my heart. And it's true with every single one. That's hard to wrap your mind around, isn't it? That's called deity. And that's why we are finite. We don't understand some of these things. But I tell you this, while he was asleep in the hinder part of the ship, I don't know if he was dreaming. I don't know if he was just out. I'm sure he was wore out. That's why he was taking rest, because even the Son of Man needed to rest, because he was all man. But all of a sudden now, they come to him, fearing for their very lives, and they awake him. And he goes, what are you doing? Get away from me, you losers! Don't you realize how hard I've been working? Don't you realize how difficult life is for me? 
Don't you realize how much I've been doing for others? Why don't you do something for yourself, you stinking lazy good-for-nothings? He didn't do that, did he? You've never done that to somebody you say you love, have you? Jesus was willing to be interrupted. That's how I know he cares, and that's how I know he loves me. He'll let me interrupt him any time. I'm a priority to him. You know, there are some people that if I'm in the midst of a situation, say I'm in my office and I've got somebody I'm dealing with, and, and, and you know, my, my wife is extremely good about not being, you know, je- jealous of me and the church and people and all that. She's extremely good about do your job. When you're at work, you're at work. I don't mess with you. I don't call you. I don't ask you to pick up bread. I don't do all that stuff. And I'm grateful for that because I've got things to do that are important. And she's got things she should be doing that are important. And what she should be doing, I shouldn't be doing. What I should be doing, she shouldn't be doing, so to speak. We both have our responsibilities. We have our job. We have our role. But yet, let me tell you something. If she calls to that office and says, listen, I need to talk to my husband. It's an emergency. I don't care if I'm counseling with you about the the biggest problem in this world. That knock's going to come to the door. It's going to open. I'm going to say, yes, and I'm going to be a little perturbed. Because I'm going to be like, are you kidding me? But you know what I'm doing is very important here. And they're going to say, your wife really needs to talk to you. And I'll say, hold that thought. And I'm taking that call. She's allowed to interrupt me. You want to know why? Because I love her. Because I love her, I care enough to be interrupted. And you know what? If you love people, you'll find you'll be willing to be interrupted. Jesus, not only that, he was willing to be inconvenienced. You say, how do we know that Jesus loved him? How do we know Jesus cared? Because he was willing to be inconvenienced. Now, I'm telling you, none of us know what it is to work the hours that Jesus worked. I I, I believe with all my heart that, that the man, Jesus Christ, did not sleep like you and I. He was wore out for three and a half years. He did nothing but work. Yeah, when it came time for those that were burdened and concerned about their welfare and their being and even their very lives, he said, you know what? I'll be interrupted and I will be inconvenienced. And he arose, the Bible said. He got up from that soft, cushy pillow where he was resting and sleeping and he said, that's all right. I need the rest and I can use the rest and it's important that I get my rest. But I'm going to tell you more important than that is that I can meet your need and I can help you out and I can be there for you. Because I love you and I care about you. I'll be inconvenienced for you. Two weeks from now, some of us need to be inconvenienced. All of us ought to be inconvenienced. We ought to love and care about somebody enough to go pick them up even that morning. See, we don't have services at 10 o'clock because we want you to have the liberty to pick people up and bring them with you. That's why we don't have Sunday school on that day. Not because we don't like Sunday school. Or because it's just such a big day we can't deal with it. No, we can deal with it. But we want to make, give you every opportunity to show how much you care for someone. You'll be willing to be interrupted. You'll be willing to be inconvenienced if you care enough for somebody. And that's true in your family. It's true in your home. It's true at your workplace. It's true wherever we live. Jesus, he's proving to us in this passage again. The Bible says he arose. He was inconvenienced. Not only that, not only was he willing to be interrupted, willing to be inconvenienced, but he was willing to be involved. He's willing to step into his place. He was willing to do something about the problem. 
Not only was he interrupted and inconvenienced at that point, but he said, you know what? I'm going to get involved in this. This is important to them. It's important to me. And again, we can't do everything. I understand that. And somebody out there saying, you just don't get it. I do get it. But I'm telling you this. Jesus is a pretty good example for us. We ought to realize there are times in our lives when people that are in need and that we care about, we say we love, the only way they're going to know it is if we are willing to be interrupted and willing to be inconvenienced and ultimately involved in their lives. Because if you tell somebody enough, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, but don't you interrupt me, don't you inconvenience me, and don't you think I'm going to get involved, sooner or later they're going to go, I don't think you really love me. He rebuked the wind, the Bible says. See, God reminds you and I to cast our cares upon him. Why? Because he careth for us. He is preeminent. And he's over all his creation. And he's over you and he's over me. And he has preeminence. But not only that, but he has passion for us. The very God that created the universe cares for you and he loves you today. Not only that, but we see or note his power. In verse 39, it says that he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Man, he spoke, the Bible says. You know, it's interesting, you know, when we think about that situation, and and again, I've, I've talked about this. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, but we talk about this peace be still, and, and, and the Bible says he spoke. It doesn't say he cried. It doesn't say he yelled. It doesn't say he screamed. He spoke. And I got to believe that when he did say peace be still, he literally spoke it. He just said, peace be still. I don't think he yelled, and I don't think he had to make a big and dramatic. I don't think he went, peace be still. So that the world could see him and go, wow, that's God. I don't think he did that. I think he just stood over there and he went, all right, fellas. Okay. Peace be still. I think he spoke it. I don't think he has to yell. And you know what? Do yourselves a favor and learn to take control of your children so you don't have to yell. I just thought I'd throw that in. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Don't do it again. No, not one more time or you're going to wish you didn't. Oh, you got them under control. When your children are under control, you only have to speak. Jesus was in control of the creation. He only had to speak. May I say... You say, how do I know that? Because when he brought it into existence, the Bible says he simply spoke. See, over there in the book of Genesis, it says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. See, I don't think God said, let there be light. I don't think he had to do that. I think he said, let there be light. And there was light. See, how loud does God have to yell to get creation's attention? He doesn't. He doesn't have to yell at all. 
It goes on to say, and God said, let there be light. Yes, but he says, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. He says, let there be, he said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place. He says, and God said, let the earth bring forth grass and herb yielding seed. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creatures that hath light and, and fowl that they may fly above the earth and the open firmament of heaven. And God said, let the earth bring forth every living creature after his kind, cattle, creeping things, beasts of the earth after his kind. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. He said it. He only had to say it. See, he spoke, and then you know what happened? He succeeded. Because what he said happened. The creator is supreme, and his creation is subject unto him. And has, he has power over that creation. We see evidence of this in the fact of his healing power throughout the book of the New Testament. Nothing is bigger than God today. Your problem certainly isn't, and neither is mine. Your circumstance isn't, and neither is mine. Your situation isn't, and neither is mine. And yet, honestly, if we're not careful, we start to believe it is. Boy, the devil's good at deceiving us, isn't he? So, in the passage, we note his preeminence, his passion, his power. Even the wind and the sea obey him, his disciples said. But we note his patience. We note his patience. Look at verse 40 through 41 here. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? Think about who he's talking to for a minute. His disciples. How is it that ye have no faith? Wow. Isn't that interesting? You know what I I think, from what I can tell, uh, and this is kind of interesting. I can have faith unto salvation, but then there are situations I have no faith. I, I kind of believe that. Oh, you say, well, I've got faith. I know, but do you have faith right now? In the midst of your circumstance, in the midst of your situation. See, I believe you can believe there's a God and you can believe that he died on the cross to pay for your sin. He was buried and rose again. And you can believe that if you call on him, he'll save you. And you do believe that. And you say, I know I'm saved. I know I'm on the way to heaven. But now in the midst of your financial dilemma, in the midst of your relational problem, in the midst of your personal issues, in the midst of your health problems, let me ask you, is there any faith? Because I believe right now he's telling us that even though these disciples had left all and followed him, although they had been willing to travel with him day and night, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, although they had given up their very existence, so to speak, and they'd given up their businesses, and they'd given up, in a sense, following after anything else in their life, all their dreams and all their ambitions and all their goals, they gave them up for Jesus Christ. And yet he looks at them and he says to them, Have you no faith? I believe that each one of us in the room at times can demonstrate no faith. And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? But even though the disciples were in this position, even though you and I find ourselves there from time to time potentially, and I hope we don't, but if we do, I think it's so important to note that he was patient with them. You say, how do you know that? 
Because we read that he was still with them. And they were with him later. That he didn't give up on him and he didn't cast him aside. That he didn't say, you know what, you guys just don't get it. I mean, you, after this time, after all this time, seeing what you've seen and hearing what you've heard and having the opportunity to talk to me and walk with me and live with me, you can't tell who I am and what I'm capable of. In spite of all that, he never said that. I don't know about you, but it brings me great comfort to know that I can be weak at times in my Christian life and God's still there to meet my need. That he'll still come along and wrap his arms around me and say, Mark, you may not be everything you ought to be, but I'm still there for you. And you may fail me in certain times in your life, but I want you to know that I haven't given up on you. I still love you and I still care for you. You know what that ought to motivate us to do? One word. Better. We got to strive to be better because He is the way He is. Not just, well, He's going to accept me anyway. <laughs> he's going to love me anyhow. I'm His child, so He's stuck with me. <laughs> no, we ought to say, I'm going to be better because I can't believe He's sticking with me, even though at times I show no faith. These were seasoned veterans again. (laughs) They had likely done all that they knew to do before waking the master. I got to believe that, don't you? I mean, don't you think that Peter, James, and John, and others that had spent a lifetime on the sea had extinguished every thought and every possibility, had maybe even gotten buckets and were trying to get the water off the ship? They're trying to figure it out in their own human wisdom and trying to get a handle on it. Man, listen, we've been through tough times where we can get through this on our own. We can do this. But it was just too big. Too overwhelming. And desperate times require desperate measures, right? So they gathered about him for fear of their lives, mind you, and woke him. I got a question, and it kind of, it goes like this. How long does it take us to go to God with our problems? Isn't it sad how long it takes us to to go to Him at times? Because we can do this, right? We got this. We can figure it out. We can deal with it. i got to believe that the disciples did everything they could before waking the Master, and I appreciate that. And in the sense, in the context of which it is set, then I guess maybe there was a purpose and a reason for that. But may I say, as believers today, with a God, the Lord Jesus Christ on the throne, that says, come boldly to the throne of grace, that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I don't think we need to wait any longer. I think the moment that we are faced with a storm, the moment we're faced with some wind, the moment we're faced with some lightning, the moment that we find ourselves in a position where fear starts to grip our heart, where we feel that we're a little out of control, where we feel like there's situation and circumstances that are just kind of starting to weigh us down, we don't have to wait till we're finally buried by them. We simply go to him and we beg him because he loves us and he cares. 
He's so patient with us. Are you going through a storm in your life this morning? How you define storm is your business. Honestly, there are so many things that people might say, well, this is such a big deal in my life. And I'd be like, big deal? That's nothing. But then somebody else might say, what's the problem? I'd say, well, this is going on. I'm going to tell you, it's a burden in my life. They'd say, that's nothing. My point being is, is that if you have a burden, then it's a burden. If there's a weight on your shoulders, then there's a weight on your shoulders. I don't care what your husband or wife thinks. There comes a point where as a husband, you ought to be very sensitive to your wife. If it's a burden for her, it ought to be a burden for you. And vice versa, ladies. And the fact is, is that in our children's lives, they may have a burden that we say, well, it's no big deal. They're just struggling a little bit with some algebra. They turned seventh grade and now they're learning algebra. Sixth grade and they're learning algebra. It's no big deal. They'll get through it. It's a big deal to them. I'm just saying... I mean, God says to us, if it's a burden for you, it's a burden for me. That's how things ought to go. So if you got anything on your heart, I'm talking about any burden. If you got any storm in your life, you need to go to God. He is preeminent. He's above all and over all. He is passionate. He loves and he cares for you. Your smallest care is important to him today. Your God is powerful. Nothing is bigger than him, even your situation. And your God is patient. He's patient with you in the midst of your fears and your faithlessness. Don't give up on him because you feel like giving up on you or on others. He's not the problem. He's the solution every time. I love this in Mark 9, 24, as we close, he says, and straightway the father of the child cried out. And remember the child, he's casting himself into the fire. His daddy doesn't know what to do. And he said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Boy, I've prayed that so many times in my life. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And I'm always ashamed, in a sense, to pray it, but I'm glad that he's patient with me. See, he knows my heart anyway. I might as well be honest with him. The only one and the only thing that God honors is honesty and then humility. What is your storm today? Maybe today, as we close this, your storm is eternity. When the Bible talks in chapter 7 of the book of Matthew about the rain came, it talks about the house was destroyed because it wasn't on a solid foundation. Do you know that the context of that really has to do with eternity? Do you realize that some in this room possibly have a storm that they're going to face that's going to ultimately wreck and ruin not just their present life but eternity? It's going to cause you to be destroyed. You're on a path that leads to a place called the lake of fire. That the foundation that you're building, your own works, and trying to, hopefully the good outweighs the bad, and you're trying to find a way to please God somehow through your efforts and your lifestyle. The fact is, is none of those things can please God. None of those things can measure up to His holiness, His perfection, His righteousness. 
You realize that he is perfect and he's holy. And you, the Bible says, according to the word of God, me and you both in our sinfulness, we are sinners. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And that's not just physical, that is eternal. To be separated from God forever in a place called the lake of fire. And I want you to know today that that storm's going to come one day. But then it'll be too late for you. But you can settle that today. The God of all creation. He created everything you see and everything you enjoy. But may I say this? He's also created a way for you to escape your sinfulness and the consequences of your sin. When it says the wages of sin is death, it also says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus, God, became man. 100% God, 100% man, perfect and sinless to fulfill the requirement of the law, to be the propitiation for your sin and mine. The only acceptable sacrifice that the holy God of heaven could ever accept was Jesus Christ. And their perfect, perfect Lamb of God died on the cross that day and paid for your sin. And he was buried and he rose again to prove that not only can you die with Christ, you can rise with him and live forever with him. And if you are lost today without Christ and you don't know him personally, I mean today you need to say, God, I'm that sinner you died for, Lord Jesus. I know you died for me. And I know I deserve hell because I'm such a wretched sinner. But I want your forgiveness and I want your mercy today. Oh, come into my life. Be my Savior. I trust you today and what you did for me only. is payment for my sin. Boy, he'll hear your cry. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved from your sin and saved from the consequences of it. What's your storm today? Believer, what's your storm? Man, you have a God that is preeminent. You have a God that's passionate, a God that's powerful, and a God that's patient. What about you today? If your storm is that eternal storm that will strike that thing called judgment one day. You have a God that is preeminent. You have a God that's passionate. He loves you. Even though you've rejected him to this point in your life, he loves you. And he cares. He is powerful enough to forgive any sin you've ever committed. And he is patient with you to this point. And he is giving you opportunity after opportunity. And this morning is that opportunity Because you don't know what tomorrow holds. You only have this moment. Guaranteed. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Won't you come to him today? Won't you settle your soul's salvation? Won't you accept the Savior of all the world as Savior this morning? Father, we come to you. We thank you again for your grace and your mercy and your love. We thank you, Father, that you're still the same God that was on in the hinder part of that ship that rose up caring about us, being willing to be 